I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bible this morning to Mark chapter 15. Uh, when you have that, I invite you to stand with me this morning as we begin in verse 16. Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 16. The Bible says, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to, be crucified, to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him a wine mixed with myrrh, and he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. You may be seated. We come as we have been seen as we go through Mark, as we approach the end of Mark, the storyline slows dramatically, and it seems like it does so each week. And that's intentional on the part of the gospel writers because they understood that the end of Jesus' life, in particular the last week of Jesus' life, was obviously the most important out of all uh, of the time that he had spent on earth. And so we come this week and then next to the crucifixion of Christ. We have seen his arrest. We have seen the trial before the religious leaders. We have seen the trial uh, before Pilate. We have seen Pilate agreeing to release a murderer as opposed to releasing Jesus. And so now the crowd, which we saw at the end of last week's message at the beginning part of chapter 15, they get their way. They yell, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate gives in. And so now we come to, we come to the last moments of Christ's life on earth as he is killed uh, at the whim of the religious leaders. And what we see as we have seen through this from beginning with his arrest and all the way through uh, ultimately his last breath, we see that Jesus is fully resolved to go through what he has, um, what God has sent him to do. He is fully committed to go through with his own death, even though again he has done nothing wrong, he has committed no sin, he has committed no crime, he has done nothing that would be worthy of what uh, the religious leaders want to happen and what the crowd calls for there uh, before Pilate. 
He's done nothing to deserve any of this. And yet, he is fully committed and fully resolved to go through with this crucifixion. We see that in these passages, in these verses, Jesus stands firm on his commitment to offer himself up so that we might have salvation. He stands firm even though, again, he has done nothing wrong. He stands firm even though standing firm means that he is going to endure great pain and hardship. And yet he continues to stand firm. He continues to be committed. As we look through this passage this morning, I want us to think about our own resolve, our own commitment to the calling that Christ has placed in our life. If you look through the last several weeks, this has been kind of a a constant theme. I think you're going to see moving forward in the church in the United States that this is going to have to be a constant theme that preachers preach on. Because if not, I believe we're coming to a time where we're going to face a decision about our resolve. We're going to face a decision about whether or not we will stand firm in the face of difficult circumstances. We've all faced that decision. We've all been through some type of struggle. We've all been through some type of of heartache or hardship that that has caused us to question our resolve when it comes to our walk with Christ. We've, We've been through some difficulty that has made it hard for us to continue on in this journey of faith that we have. But I believe that those things are going to increasingly get harder that it's going to be increasingly difficult in our culture to remain committed to the things that Christ has called us to do. I mean, we we see that already. We see how in the media, how in our celebrity culture, that anyone who has faith in Christ that they want to live out is derided and decried because of that. They're looked at differently. And things that we understand to be sinful, things that we know that God has said that people should not do, those things are celebrated in our culture. And so the question will come for us, will we stand firm? Will we remain committed to Christ in the face of difficulties and hardship? When we come to that point of decision where we must decide what we're going to do, where we must decide if we're going to to give in to the things of the world, we're going to give in to the desires of our flesh, we're going to give in to uh, the desires of materialism and things like that. When we come to that point, I think what will be most helpful for us is to realize that we have an example, a biblical example of someone who stood firm in the face of difficulty and hardship. And the fortunate thing for us is we don't have to look at someone in the biblical storyline who is sinful and therefore, you know, you could point out all their flaws and say, well, they didn't really do well in this instance. Yeah, maybe they stood firm on this one thing, but you go five verses later and now they've fallen into some terrible sin. The the fortunate thing for us is that God has been gracious for us and to us in sending his son so that we can look at him And we have a perfect example. We have an example with no flaws, 
We have an example with no mess-ups. We have an example with no skeletons in the closets, no hidden sin that you weren't aware of. There's, there's none of that when we look at the example of Christ. And so this morning I want us to see the, the three things here that Jesus stands firm while He is facing. He stands firm while He's facing mockery. He stands firm while He's facing humiliation. And ultimately, He stands firm when He's enduring pain. As we begin in verse 16, we see where Jesus is standing firm while He is enduring mockery. By far, this makes up the bulk of this text as far as what Jesus endures. He is led away. Pilate sends him to be crucified. In verse 16, he is led away inside the palace. So he's there in front of the people and they take him back into the palace. And an entire battalion of soldiers gather around him and they begin to mock him. They take this purple robe and they they wrap it around him and they take this, uh, this crown of thorns and they place it upon his head and then they begin to salute him. They say, Hail, King of the Jews. They're bowing before Him. As a matter of fact, they're, they're striking Him in one instance and spitting on Him. And in the next, they're kneeling down before Him as if He is some type of king. We see in verses 16-20, through 20, and then we'll see in a few verses later, that the soldiers are one of the groups of people that mock Jesus. There's four of them within this text of, of people, groups of people that mock Jesus. The first one is the soldiers, and they mock him to deny his kingship. They mock him to deny his kingship. So when they put this robe on him, and they put this crown of thorns on his head, they they don't do this because they think he is a real king. They they don't think, well, you know, know, it's, it's too bad that they are going to actually execute this man who is the king of the Jews. No, they they don't think he's a king at all. They have no respect for him. They have no respect for for anything that he stands for, so they mock him as being a king. What's interesting, they lead him out later, and when they they put Jesus on the cross, they they do a similar thing. They put above his head that he's also king of the Jews. Again, they don't believe it. So they mock his kingship. But the irony about them mocking his kingship is that he really is the king. As a matter of fact, there is nothing that Jesus does that reveals his authority as king more than going to the cross. Because by going to the cross, he can now be king over his people because you and I can have a relationship with Christ because he shed his blood on the cross for us and he can be our Lord, our king. Because he did that. So the irony of this is, as they are mocking him, putting this robe around him, putting the crown of thorns on his head, they're actually mocking him, but they're telling the truth. He really is the king of the Jews. He really is the king of the universe. But that's not how they see it. Our world mocks the kingship of Christ. I mean... This idea that there is a God in heaven who is Lord over all is a ridiculous notion to most people in the world. They reject that. They reject the authority that he has as king. See, a king has ultimate authority over his people. 
It's not like a, a president who is limited in his power by, by a document. It's not like a, a prime minister or a governor or a legislator, a senator or a congressman. A king has absolute and complete authority. He, he has that authority and there is no one to question that authority. That authority belongs to him in total. Jesus exercises that authority. See, if you're reading this, you may go, well, Jesus is, is not in control at all, and yet at, he maintains control the entire time. His plan is perfectly carried out exactly the way he wanted it to be. There is no deviation. This is what he had planned all along. The sad thing is there's a vein of thought even within Christians that you can have Jesus as your Savior, and that's good. We like to have Jesus as our Savior. We want to be saved. Nobody wants to, to die and go to hell one day. Nobody, you know, that's not a thought that people have. People want to have Jesus as Savior. But, but there's this notion that you can separate that. That you can have Him as your Savior and not as your Lord. And see, it doesn't work like that. It's both. You can't have Him saving you but not have him as Lord over your life. Now, that's what most people, if they want to have any connection with Jesus at all, that's what they want to have. Hey, you know, I'll go to heaven one day and that'll be great, but Jesus, don't, don't tell me what to do. Jesus, you're not in control of my life. But see, what we understand here is that the soldiers are mocking him, not for the salvation, we'll get to that in a moment, but they're mocking him in his role as king over them and the reality that we need to understand is that jesus is our king and the world is going to mock that role that he has the world is going to mock him as king they're going to mock that that's even possible the unfortunate nature is a lot of christians are starting to do that too they don't mind jesus being confined to the church but they mock the idea that he's lord over all but friends, that's the only Jesus that is portrayed in the Bible. There is no Jesus in the Bible. You can't find a Jesus in the Bible that is willing to be Savior and save you from your sin and all the other things and not be Lord. There's no Jesus that you can find in the Bible that is not the King. The one true King, the King over all. It's not there. Go to the book of Revelation and read how Jesus is portrayed. He is not some wimpy guy he's no longer submissive to the people who would torture him go and read the book of revelation particularly the beginning and the end of the book of revelation and see how jesus is portrayed as the conquering lord who comes and takes back what is his i mean the imagery in chapter one of revelation of christ is wonderful and he is no longer meek and mild, but he is the conquering, returning king of the universe. Now, friends, the world mocks that. But we must realize that that is true and that is good. And we receive Christ not only as our Savior, but as Lord over us. He's now our king. He's now in control. He now makes the decisions. He now calls the shots. He directs us to where He wants us to go. If we don't accept that, then we stand with these soldiers wrapping a purple cloth around Jesus, putting a crown of thorns on His head, and mocking Him. 
That's the first group that mocks Jesus. The second is the public in general. The crowd mocks Jesus. They've already done this, and they continue to do so. Look in uh, verse 29. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. They mock him. They mock him. They don't think he can do that. Hey, you know, Jesus, you used to say that you could knock down the temple and rebuild it in three days. That's an impressive feat. And yet you can't save yourself right here. You can't even get yourself off the cross. You can rebuild the temple in three days. You can do all this wonderful stuff, but you, you can't get off that cross. They mock him. But the interesting thing about them mocking him is the way they do it. By bringing this back up where he said if the temple was destroyed in three days, he would rebuild it. Now first, Jesus never said that if he destroyed the temple in three days, then, then it would be rebuilt. He said if you destroy this temple in three days, this is in the book of, of John, in the Gospel of John chapter 2. He says if you destroy this temple in three days, uh, or if you destroy this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. Now, he's not talking about this physical building that sits there in Jerusalem. John's Gospel is clear about that. He was talking about his own body. He said, if you destroy this temple, if you destroy me, I'll rebuild it in three days. In allusion to the resurrection. But that's what has been used, if you remember back just a few verses, that is what had been used in front of the religious leaders to destroy Jesus and say that he was committing blasphemy. And so now the public brings that up. But the interesting thing about the way they mock him, not only do they mock him, but they mock him in a particular manner where the soldiers deny Jesus' kingship by mocking him. Now the public denies his promises by mocking him. Because it was a promise that Jesus made. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll build it back. It was a promise. And they're mocking his promises. They're saying, that's not possible. It can't happen. It's taken years to build this temple. There's no way it's going to be rebuilt in three days. You, you can't do that. It's not possible. So they mock his promises. Isn't that what the world does today about the promises of Christ? They, they mock him. He's never coming back. He's never coming back. That's never going to happen. They mock that. He offers you eternal life. That's a promise. The promise is that if you follow Christ, you will have eternal life with Him. The world mocks that. The world says there's nothing after this life. One day you're going to die, and that's it. You're dead. You better hope you did something with your life where people put your name in a book somewhere and people teach you in school, because if not, you're going to be forgotten. Think about in history, the billions upon billions of people whose names aren't in history books anywhere. Their lives were pointless, meaningless. Who cares? They lived and they died and they put them in the ground somewhere and they've already decayed to the point where there's nothing left. To the world, that's how irrelevant life is. It's meaningless. It's pointless. But God promises that there is something after this life. And the world mocks that. 
The world mocks the promises of God when he says there is right and there's wrong. And here the soldiers mock the idea, even though they, they're thinking about a physical temple, they are mocking the promise that Christ has made that God will raise him from the dead on the third day. The greatest promise and the greatest promise fulfilled in the scriptures. All the way back, go all the way back to the book of Genesis, we see this, this connection where the serpent and the woman are at odds with one another and God promises there there's going to be some redemption. And all the way through the Old Testament we see that promise and then it comes out fully here when Jesus dies and then on the third day is risen. And those people, the public, as they walk by are mocking that fact. They've made a mockery of it. They deny his promises. The question is, do we believe his promises? If the world is going to deny the promises and mock the promises of God, what are we going to do with it? Do you ever think about what comes after this life? Isn't it a strange thing when you begin to, I'm talking like by yourself somewhere quiet and you are in a, a state of either you know, meditation, not Eastern garbage meditation, but biblical meditation and you're thinking about life and what is to come. If you've never done that, first of all, you should, I mean, Come on, have, have enough intelligence to just think about life and the future and eternity. I'm not saying you're going to grasp it. Like if you come in next week, hey, I meditated this week and I grasped eternity. You don't need me anymore. I mean, you, you, we'll move your letter to, I don't know, somewhere. I don't know where they accept letters of people that have understood eternity. But it's a tough thing, right? It's not easy. Think about when you, when you stop and think about God, that there exists an all-knowing, all-powerful being who is greater than anything you have ever experienced. That if you stood at the foot of the tallest mountain in the world and you gazed up at the beauty of that mountain... It is a drop in the sea compared with the glory of God. When you start to ponder those things, it's, it's tough. It takes work. It takes some, some mental activity to, to get that going. The question is, when you come to the end of it, do you still believe the promises of God? Do you believe that God is going to do what he says he's going to do, what he has said he is going to do? Because the world mocks that notion they think that that notion is, is silly or ridiculous, that it's old-fashioned or outdated, and yet we are called upon to believe and embrace the promises of God. When Jesus says that if you tear this temple down, I will rebuild it in three days, we have the firm belief that not only did that happen, but because that happened, we have the opportunity for eternal life with Christ. The people mock that, and when they mock that, they are denying his promise. I move on into verse 31. So the chief priests, so we have the soldiers have mocked him, and now the public is kind of, they're just walking by 
the, the cross there as Jesus is hanging there. The public is just coming by, and as they do, they have mocked him. And then third, these religious leaders show back up. So the chief priest with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Come on, this guy, this is the chief priest, this, this guy saved all kinds of people. Now, interestingly, they acknowledge what Jesus has done. They acknowledge the activities of Christ. They acknowledge that he has healed people. They acknowledge that he has fed people uh, with, when food was non-existent. They have acknowledged all these things by saying he saved other people. That's interesting, they would even acknowledge that, but they had no way to deny that. They could have denied that. They could have done this a long time ago. But they've never been able to to deny the things of Christ because they happened. They were real. I mean, they knew these guys that were blind, and all of a sudden they could see. They knew these people that were lame, and all of a sudden they could walk. They couldn't deny that. It's just just reality. He saved all these other people. Surely he could save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. They mock him, and in so doing, they deny his salvation. He saved others, but really, if he would save himself, then we would see and believe. But the fact of the matter is, that is not enough for them. Their hearts were hard. They had more than enough evidence to believe in Christ. More than enough evidence that he was who he said he was. But they mock his salvation. Yeah, they, they didn't really believe they needed to be saved. They didn't think there was anything they needed to be saved from. They were very religious people. And by being very religious people, by being chief priests, by being some of the scribes, they were the top religious people. And therefore, they didn't really need salvation. It was unimportant to them. And so they make a mockery of his salvation. Is that not what the world does to our faith? What do you need saved from? The world says, the world says there's no such thing as sin. There's no such thing as hell. There's no such thing as judgment. What do you need saved from? They mock the salvation that Christ offers. The reality is that we understand from Genesis chapter 3 that we are very sinful and we are in need of salvation. The Bible says all have sinned, not some, not the people that we don't like, not people in other parts of the world, not people in other parts of the country, not the people that act ugly to us, not the people that are whatever. The Bible says all have sinned and by sinning have fallen short of God's glory and as a result of that, are in need of salvation. And Christ here, hanging on the cross, I mean, literally, we have the picture of His salvation. He is hanging on the cross. He is bleeding there in front of these people. And the drops of His blood are what provide salvation. And as they see that, they see the offer of salvation. Christ's arms literally stretched out 
offering them salvation through his death, they mock it. They mock him. They, they say if you would come down, we would see and believe, and yet it's by hanging there that he's offering the salvation. Coming down would take away the salvation. But they make a mockery of it. And they make a mockery of what he's offering. And our world makes a mockery of what he has offered. It's offensive to people. That, that, that salvation would be provided through something that was so bloody and ugly. Paul writes in the book of 1 Corinthians, this foolishness. The cross is foolishness. It's, it's foolish to people that, that, that God would offer salvation through something that is so ugly and messy. And yet God is taking away something that is ugly and messy and so it only makes sense then that he would offer something ugly and messy to remove that which was ugly and messy and distorted. Our sin. Our wicked hearts are only changed by something ugly and messy. So I wonder that as we think about this, as we think about our need to stand firm and endure mockery, do we stand firm when it comes to Christ's offer of salvation? Or do we mock it? Trust me, there's a lot of preachers this morning who will stand in front or preachers this morning who will stand in front of people and they will mock salvation the way God offered it. They will mock that he offered salvation through the death of his son, that he took the wrath that was coming toward us and he placed it upon his son at the cross so that that wrath would no longer be placed upon us. What you see happening in these verses to Christ is what we deserved and what was coming to us from God if it weren't for Christ. But the world mocks that. The world mocks that offer of salvation. Do we? Do we mock it by taking it for granted? Do we mock it by minimizing what Christ did for us? I had a discussion this week with someone talking about the importance of believers' baptism and talking about how, you know, as, as Baptists, we believe that a person should be baptized when they've come to faith in Christ. And yet we, we look out and we see in the world lots of people who, who want to give assurance of salvation, not through someone making a commitment to Christ and their heart being changed by Him, but, but because of baptism or because of church membership or church attendance or anything else. We must be committed to a proper understanding of Christ's salvation. And the fourth group that mocks Jesus in the last part of that verse, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. The thing about this, this is, this is just it's such a sad commentary on the people who are surrounding Christ as he is dying. But we have a record here that those who are hanging on his left and on his right, robbers who they were, are mocking him. 
We understand from the Gospels that one later turns from this mockery and, and asks Christ to remember him when he comes into his kingdom and asks Christ to, to uh, forgive him and save him, and Christ offers that promise. But they are robbers hanging there on the cross, going to die. I mean, it's not like you, you survive crucifixion. It's not like this is a, a, a time of torture and then at some point they release you if you make it. You're, the, the whole point of crucifixion is a brutal and painful death. And they mock him. They act like he is less than they are. Now, the truth is Christ has humbled himself to being less than all of these people so that he may be exalted ultimately in the end by God. But when they deny him, or rather revile him, they are denying his perfection. They were sinners deserving of death, and he was not, and yet they act like he is worse than they are. They deny his perfection. Do we realize that Christ is perfect? I said at the beginning, when we're looking at this example, we, we are so fortunate that God gave us this example. We're not having to look at a King David who had the flaws that he had, or a Moses or an Abraham who had the flaws that they had, and try to, try to glean from their character what we can and apply to our life. We're, we're looking here at Christ. And so everything that he does is a perfect example to us. It doesn't mean that we have the abilities that he has. He is God, and we are not. But everything about his character is a desirable trait. There, there's nothing about Christ's character that we would go, you know, that's just not really, that's not really good. Everything about his character is perfect. And yet these men deny his perfection. They deny his perfect character by belittling him, by, by acting as if he should be there with them, as if he had done something to deserve this it's Jesus' character that ultimately draws this man to him later on, this man who was hanging there and was in one moment reviling him and now turns to faith in God, or Jesus promises, you'll be with me in paradise today. It's all it took was that, that one moment. Remember me. Just a moment of repentance. And this man goes from an eternal destiny separated from God to immediately being offered the presence of Christ forever on that day. But in this moment, as they're reviling him, they deny his perfection. So they mock him. But Jesus stands firm. He endures this mockery. He doesn't stop and call in 10,000 angels to save him, but he pushes on. They deny his kingship and his promises and his salvation and his perfection, and he presses on. He endures mockery. But the other two, and they're much shorter than this one. Obviously, mockery is the thing he endures most here, but there's two other things in, in just a few verses that he endures. He endures in verse 21, this humiliation. They take him, they, they take a uh, passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who who many believe became part of the Christian church because they reference his sons here, which would make no sense if he was really just an obscure person who has, who has no connection at all. But rather, they pick out this man and they, they um, compel him to carry uh, the cross of Christ. He takes it to a place of Golgotha, which is called the skull in verse 22. 
And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what uh, each should do or each should take. They humiliate Christ. I mean, they, they take him here, they parade him in front of these people, they take him up to the cross, they crucify him, and they, they strip his clothes. I mean, he's put on the cross with no clothing in a public display of humiliation. You know, we think about the few places in our country that still have uh, the death penalty, and it's, it's something that's done very quietly and privately. There may be a few people there from the, the family that, of the person who was murdered, uh, maybe a couple members of the media just as a, uh, you know, a transparency thing to make sure that you know, it really happened, it was really him and that, the, or her. And, um, but this was public. You know, you, 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 look at, you look at these videos that have surfaced over the last few years with ISIS publicly executing people. And, and they make it a big show. You know, they, they, it's, it's said that they take these people and they, they do these um, executions and they mock these executions time and time again so that they don't actually believe it's really happening. So when they do, it, you know, the person is caught completely off guard. It's just a horrendous thing. ISIS throwing people off of buildings, you know, publicly shooting people. You know, we, we look at that and we think about how horrific that is. I mean, you know, we think, well, at least we're, you know, civilized enough that we, we, don't, we don't do that. Well, that's exactly what happens to Christ. He's taken out and publicly executed. And he's, he's hung there with no clothes on, with nothing on, hung there in front, publicly, in front of the crowds as they walk by and mock him and humiliate him. And yet, he endures that. He endures that humiliation and presses on through it. I wonder, in our life, what level of humiliation we are ready and willing to endure for the sake of the gospel. His clothes are divided up and they're, they're, they cast lots, they gamble them away as a prize. While he's hanging there dying. That's the level of humiliation your Savior was willing to endure for you. It wasn't just taken out, you know. It wasn't like at the beginning here, the inner part of the palace where he is beaten and, and tortured. No, he's taken out and publicly executed, completely naked, in front of everyone after he'd been tortured and beaten for you. And yet, we are concerned that if we mention that we go to church, someone might not like us. You know, I get away with it. I'm the preacher. You know, it's, it's, 
it's, it's kind of nice. Uh, I imagine that preachers generations ago had people, you know, act real awkward around them in public sometimes and try to hide their, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, coaching sports and stuff. I mean, you know, people don't mind cussing in front of me and talking about their, you know, going out and getting hammered in front of me and stuff like that. It's just kind of nice. People don't have to play, you know, because I don't like that, frankly. I mean, you know, I don't like people acting weird around me because that's weird. And, you know, I mean, who likes that? But, see, y'all are different. I mean, you know, y'all, if, like, everybody knows the preacher goes to church. That's just kind of the way that works. But the rest of you, it could go either way, right? I mean, you know, uh, I, I meet people all the time, and I just assumed they didn't go to church. Not because they'd done anything wrong, but I'm just kind of... If you assume that about most people, then that gives you the opportunity to, to you know, share your faith and, and talk about church and things like that with them. But, uh, you know, I'm surprised sometimes to find out people go to church. It's like, wow, hey, you know, that's cool. You go to church. That's, that's good. And some people I really would have just swore. I mean, they just seem like good, upstanding people. And today that probably means you go to church, and yet they don't. But, you know, for you it's different. It can go either way. So what level of humiliation are you willing to endure just to tell somebody you go to church? I mean, because trust me, that's like the minimal step in your relationship with Christ is acknowledging you go to church. That doesn't even acknowledge Christ. I mean, you go to the most pagan, foul church that doesn't believe the Bible. So, I mean, this is the first even step. Christ is willing to endure this public humiliation for you, what's, what's our level? Like, at what point are we going to cut out and say, you know what, that's, that's it, that's as far as I can go? Because here's the reality. If it's not being executed publicly in front of everyone, then you're not committed to go far enough. Because that's the level of commitment that is expected. And you say, well, that's just too far. i got too much to think about. i got... What's more important than this? I mean, there's nothing more important than this, right? I mean, here's the reality. If you're not aware, there's a very important football game on this evening. Starts at 6.30. And for the first time since 2003, or 2004 technically, the Panthers playing the Super Bowl. That's a big deal for me. I've been a Panthers fan for a long time. I remember Rachel and I were engaged when we sat and watched the last Super Bowl. And you know what? They lost. John Casey kicked the ball out on a kickoff. It started Tom Brady at the 40-yard line, and that idiot got him in field goal range, and I still don't like Tom Brady for lots of reasons besides that, but that's a good one. But you know what? That was a Sunday night. And the sun came up the next day, and Rachel and I got married, and we've had a bunch of kids, and I've become your pastor, and all that's happened. And a few years ago, those, that same team, the Carolina Panthers, were 2-14. and 14. And they uh, had first pick in the draft, and they drafted Cam Newton. You know, had the second pick that year, the Broncos, which is crazy. So both of the most terrible teams are now both winning the Super Bowl, you know, five years later. And that's all to say that the sun still came up and we still going about life and that's not the most important thing. 
but I love the Panthers. I went to four games this year. I got this jersey. I'm going to give up a piece of autograph memorabilia for one of you to win chili cook-off tonight, unless, of course, I win the chili cook-off, and I'll just keep it, which is preferable. But it's not the most important thing. And I don't think any of you in the room think that, that a football game or a football team or a sport in general is the most important thing. I don't think most of those guys that play that sport think it's the most important thing. Some of them do, obviously, and their lives are going to end in destruction. But a lot of those guys, they value their family more than they value the sport. They value their, their relationships more than they value that. Why? Because it's not the most important thing. But when we come to Christ, it is the most important thing. There is nothing more important. If we get it wrong with Christ, we get it wrong with everything else. We get it wrong with our family. We get it wrong with our children. We get it wrong in our relationships. We're going to get our job wrong. We're going to get our finances wrong. We're going to get everything wrong if we get it wrong with Christ. So the question then becomes, what is the level of humiliation you would be willing to endure for the sake of Christ? Because, friends, it's coming. Not it's coming because of this or that going on in our country. It's coming because that's just the, what the Bible talks about. That it will never be easy. It's been easy here in our country for a long time to follow Christ. But in most of the world, it is not easy. And we will get caught up with them at some point. It's not like they're going to catch up with us. And all of a sudden, in the Middle East, everyone who hates Christians are going to put down their guns and their swords and their bombs and say, no, no, that's not how it's going to happen. It's going to get worse. What's your level? And then finally, he st he's, Jesus stood firm enduring mockery. He stood firm enduring humiliation. And finally, he stands firm enduring pain. Verse 25, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. He endures pain. Matter of fact, we know around three hours or so or more that he's on the cross. I'm sorry, six hours or more that he's on the cross. That's huge spikes through your wrists and through your feet. But that's not the worst of it. I mean, that's bad, obviously. That's not the worst of it. Crucifixion was not about killing you through blood loss. It wasn't about killing you through just the pain of being on the cross. Literally, crucifixion kills you by suffocating you. So as you hang there, you have to push yourself up to take a breath. And the longer you have to push yourself up, obviously the tighter that your muscles get. And at some point, you can no longer push yourself up to get a breath, and so you drown in your own fluids in your lungs. I, mean, I don't say that to be overly graphic or gross or anything. That's just the reality of what happened. And that's what Christ endured. And he knows this. Again, it's not like he goes to the cross and he's surprised by all the things that are happening to him. He knows what is going to happen and he knows the pain that he is going to endure and yet he does so anything. The cross is worse than anything you could ever imagine. It's, it's why, for one thing, we don't use something like that and it's exactly why those people, again, as we look at the terrorists in the Middle East, it's why they are using the cross to kill people now is because they know that it is horrific torture. 
that is a favorite of the terrorists to kill people that they don't like is to put them on a cross. Because it is one of, if not the most horrific ways of dying. He endures it, though. Stands firm. Could have called 10,000 angels to get him off the cross, had the ability just to, to kill everybody there. He could have just thought it. I mean, he's God. He could have just thought, you know, I don't know those people did. And they would have just died. He could have spoken. Just looked at any of them, spoke it, and said, you're dead. And they would just died right there. He could have made them not exist anymore. But he stands firm and he, he takes the pain. He endures the pain of the cross for you. I hope it never comes to the point in, in our country, much less with, with anybody that I know, I hope it never comes to the point where we have to choose between following Christ and losing our life. I pray that doesn't come to any Christian anywhere. It does every day. Every day throughout the world, Christians have to make that decision. And I hope it never comes to any of us, anybody we know. I hope it doesn't come to our children or our grandchildren. They have to make that decision in our country or wherever God sends them throughout the world. But the question is not you know, if it's going to happen, but what would we do if it does happen? And I think it is easy in our context to say, well, I would definitely... You know, I would, I would say yes to Christ and I, I would die. Because we don't have to make that decision. But this is where we go back to that place where we're sitting by ourselves. It's us and God. And we are thinking about his things and his ways. And we're thinking about our heart. We're meditating on his word, as the Bible says. It's when we get to that place. And we ask ourselves, what would I do? That's where we've got to have the answer right. Not, well, we're all here in a group, and so everybody's got to raise their hands. Yes, I, I'm committed. I would go wherever Christ leads me. I would do whatever Christ calls me to do. It's, it's get by yourself in a quiet place and say to God, God, if, if that's not my heart, would you change my heart? Because let me promise you, when you make that commitment between you and God, worrying about if the guy that works next to you is going to think it's weird that you go to church, it's just not going to matter anymore. When you make that commitment, God, really, wherever you lead me, I'll go, God, whatever you want me to do, that's what I'm going to do. All these other things, being worried about mockery and humiliation are irrelevant because when our heart is completely set, God, I will go with you wherever. I will, as you call me to do, take up my cross and follow you. We think, and again, it's from fake poser preachers who have made this trendy, but this idea of taking up our cross is become this mantra for anything we have to endure that we don't like, you know. My bank account, you know, my 
Bank account's not as good as I would like it to be. I'm just enduring my, my cross. My retirement's gotten killed in the stock market the last five weeks. If yours hadn't, it's because you hadn't looked at it. Trust me, it has. Mine's terrible. Because of that, I'm enduring my cross. I didn't get picked for the team. I, my best friend doesn't like me. Whatever. I'm enduring my cross. That's not what the Bible says at all. The cross was an instrument of pain and torture and death. And we must be willing to go wherever and do whatever for the cause of Christ. I wonder this morning if you're committed to standing firm with our Savior. See, in the face of death, He stands firm. He doesn't waver. He doesn't lose His commitment. But the question is, can the same be said for you? Can the same be said for you and your commitment to Christ? Is it founded on the rock of our salvation? Is it firm and assured and never wavering? Have you made that commitment no matter what would come your way? Because see, I realize, this is the thing, if it ever comes in our country and in our community to the point where there is any type of difficulty for people to follow Christ, there will be a mass exodus from churches. I'm not saying any of you, but trust me, if there was any danger in coming to church, there'd be a lot less people in our churches, in our country. If there was a chance that you might come in and be questioned by a government official, or you might come in and, and face scrutiny, you might come in and, and lose relationships in the community, you could come into church and it might cost you your job. There will be a lot less people who show up at church on Sunday morning. It's just the way it is. How do you prepare for that to make sure that's not you? Because I think we'd all again say, well, that wouldn't be me. It's by preparing our hearts now to stand with Christ. Preparing our hearts now to be fully committed and stand firm as he did. Remember, he stands firm before the religious leaders. He stands firm before Pilate. He stands firm as he's being mocked and abused by these soldiers. He stands firm as he's hanging there offering salvation to these people who are mocking his offer of salvation and his promises. And yet he remains and offers salvation to them. What then? What then should prevent us from standing firm for the cause of Christ? What would prevent us from following after him and going where he's called us to do, doing the things that he's called us to do, regardless of what it costs us? We bow your heads with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you love us. We are grateful that you care for us. God, that you have offered us salvation. And you did so by standing firm. Through the mockery and through the humiliation, through the pain, you stood firm. God, we, play, we pray that you would help us to stand firm as well. God, we understand that in this world there are heartaches, there are, God, uncertainty. There is uncertainty, God. There's, there's 
God, so many things that try to come in between us and our relationship with you. God, my prayer is that we would be more firmly committed today than ever before. That we would commit our hearts to following you regardless of the cost. God, we love you for for all that you've done for us. We love you because you first loved us. We love you that you have given us salvation full and free. And God, I pray that we would be committed to wherever that salvation leads us. God, I pray, Lord, for those here who are struggling with commitment, struggling with their commitment to you. God, that you would just speak to their heart. God, renew, renew them. Renew their heart, renew their commitment. God, we thank you. And we thank you for all that you've done for us. We thank you for all that you're going to do. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand up with me this morning as we get ready to sing. The question is, how, how is your commitment to Christ? What are you committed to? How committed are you? Those are things we don't wait to find out in a time of struggle. Those are the things that we, we commit to now, that we work on now, so that when struggles come and heartaches come, when we have things that we must endure, our faith is solid. It's built on a firm foundation. And we know where we stand with God. If you struggle with that, would you respond to the invitation this morning, where you're at, or or come here to the front and pray that God would strengthen your resolve and commitment. That He would remind you of His goodness and His grace. That He would remind you of His standing firm and being committed for you. And therefore offering you His salvation. Would you respond as we sing this morning?